Hello and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with L. Scott Lingamfelter, author of Desert Redleg, Artillery Warfare in the First Gulf War, published by the University Press of Kentucky, May 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. I'm delighted to be here, Chris. So first, how did you get into studying and writing a book on this subject? I guess you lived it, so, you know, talk about that. Well, that's right. You know, when you fight in a war, you get real personal and close with that war. Uh, and I was certainly in that war with the 1st Infantry Division Artillery. Uh, we deployed out of uh, Fort Riley, Kansas, to the Middle East in late 1990 and early 1991. I was the division artillery executive officer, which is the, the sort of chief of staff, the second in line in the Devarty structure. So I was in a unique position. I had a chance to uh, keep diaries throughout the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had tremendous insight into what was going on day in and day out at the tactical level. I think you joined the Army in 73 or 74. Is that correct? Right. I took my commission from the Virginia Military Institute mm-hmm. on, the 19th, on the 19th of May, 1973. Mm-hmm. Entered the field artillery as a regular officer. Had many, many assignments in the field artillery from 1974 up until 1990 when we deployed uh, to the Persian Gulf. And actually, I had been the the, the chief operations officer, the Devarty operations officer, mm-hmm. uh, before I was the the EXO, so I had a very sound working knowledge of how uh, the division was going to fight uh, during that war, and uh, was was in just a very good position to write this book. Mm-hmm. Plus, the fact, Chris, that I don't think that this book, or rather this this topic, the first Gulf War, mm-hmm. has received the kind of serious treatment that it deserves. Uh, and I and, and let me just say that part of the reason for that, I think, is the fact that the war went so quickly mm-hmm. and ended so dramatically in an overwhelming victory for the United States that people just haven't given it a lot of treatment. Mm-hmm. And in particular, very precious little has been written about uh, the role of the field artillery in setting the conditions uh, for what was a tremendous ground victory mm-hmm. uh, that began on the 24th of February, 1991. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a few questions then, and um, you can mention if you describe them in the book, or maybe I'll be asking questions that, that you didn't address, but you can still talk to. First thing, um, so at this point, you were a fairly experienced um, artillery officer, you know, having been in for 16, 17 years. Did you feel, so as the run-up, to the first Gulf War, um, tell me sort of the um, the feelings everyone had because it it had been a while before uh, since the U.S. Had, had used artillery in such a big way. Well, it's it's really an excellent question, and it has several vectors that you can consider. First, tactically, mm-hmm. uh, the United States had learned a great deal from its experience in Vietnam on the use of the field artillery and other combat arms as well. And we had developed 
in the early 1970s a very sound air-land battle concept, which actually, Chris, had been designed to fight the Soviet Union in the on the plains of Europe in NATO. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, none of us it, in the summer of 1990 gave a lot of thought to the idea that we would be fighting air-land battle doctrine uh, against a Middle East country. And in fact, I think most of us thought there's no way that we're going to wind up fighting a war in the Middle East because, you know, first of all, the Congress and the president will see that as a big quagmire. And, you know, they, you know, Vietnam was still fresh in mind and people just didn't want to get involved in those kinds of wars. But I also had the unique opportunity to have been a, a foreign area officer, a Middle East foreign area officer as my alternate specialty. In other words, between artillery assignments, I alternated into uh, assignments where I, I called on my skills as a foreign area officer and a Middle East expert. Mm-hmm. And one of my assignments prior to Fort Riley, prior to being assigned to the 1st Infantry Division, was as the Iran-Iraq war analyst in the, the Defense Intelligence Agency mm-hmm. during uh, 1982 to 1985, where I watched the Iran-Iraq war up close and personally for, I mean, every day of my life. Mm-hmm. And so I had a very sound concept from the intelligence that I had uh, reviewed that many other people had never seen on how the Iraqis would actually fight the war. So just, and this is serendipity, but it's just, it just turns out that I get assigned to the division that's going to go over and fight these guys. Mm-hmm. So not only was I an experienced artilleryman, but I'd had some pretty good insight into how the Iraqis were going to fight. So in the summer of 1990, not a lot of us were giving a lot of thought to us going over and getting involved in a ground war uh, with Iraq. And the supreme irony of this, Chris, was here we were, very well trained as an army, probably the best trained army in the history of America. Mm-hmm. Here we were ready to fight the Soviet Union with with very sound doctrine and equipment and, and great people in the on the north plain of Germany. And we wound up fighting the Iraqis who, ironically, were Soviet clients, thoroughly equipped with Soviet equipment mm-hmm. and following in general Soviet doctrine. So this was the supreme irony of ironies, and no one in, at Fort Riley in the summer of 1990 thought that we would wind up there. And rapidly, rapidly, from August onward, we found ourselves hurtling toward uh, the Middle East to do just that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So to start from that uh, that date, that time period um, that you just mentioned, um, can, you, can you talk to the logistics of getting um, the artillery and perhaps the whole division over um, to Iraq? You know, how did you prepare? Fascinating question, because Major General Tom Rame, who went on to, to retire as a lieutenant general, was the division commander at the time. And you'll notice that I, I made the, the comment that in August, things started to accelerate quickly mm-hmm. uh, for our deployment. Tom Rame actually directed that the division begin to prepare before we ever got an order to go over and do the war. Mm-hmm. So he was very prescient. He he leaned forward and he thought, you know what? If we get called, we've got a lot of work to do to get ready to go. Mm-hmm. And so we all started leaning forward in August to get ready to deploy to the Middle East. So when the alert order came down in November, we were, man, we were we jumped right in it and, and accelerated rapidly to deployment. In early December, 
we started actually shipping 6,000 combat vehicles from the division to the Middle East ahead of actually sending out our troops. Mm-hmm. We put them on trains and then, you know, strapped them down and sent them down to the Gulf ports uh, where they were put on ships and sent to the Persian Gulf. Mm-hmm. And then after that, a couple of weeks later, we started to stage our personnel over in aircraft. I think that one of the things that we benefited from, Chris, for those of your listeners who are, who remember Reforger, the return of forces to Germany exercise that took place each year, where units like the Big Red One would deploy to NATO to, to, to plus up NATO in a full fight with the Soviets. Well, many of those preparation skills to to deploy on Reforger were very applicable to the division as we got ready to go to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. The challenge, Chris, was on the other end because the port operation was very uh, meager compared to what we had seen in in Europe with you know divisions deploying over there. It was much more advanced. The doctrine was better advanced. And so when we got to the port in Dammam uh, in Saudi Arabia to deploy from there out into the desert, it was it was a fight in and of itself. And on top of that, right in the middle of trying to escape the port with all our people and equipment, hmm. marry them, get them in the field, guess what? Scud missiles started falling on us when the war began on the 17th of January. Hmm. Okay. So just to step back just a little bit, the equipment that you had, is it, was it one of those situations where you had old equipment that uh, you had to make do with, or did you guys have... Uh, new new type of artillery equipment uh, that you were prepping to try maybe for the first first time or what was the situation there? Well, it, first of all, in in the artillery, we had the legacy uh, self propelled one five five, the M one hundred nine A two howitzer, mm-hmm. uh, and we did have an MLRS battery, uh, which was a fairly new system, but it was oddly the oldest deployed MLRS battery in the army and so we had to get some of the folks from the army material command mm-hmm. to actually come in and rebuild all those launchers in you know November October November of 1990 so that they were ready to go and were in top notch condition we did some refurbishing to our artillery as well mm-hmm. uh, and some software updates to our fire support computers and our radars, our counter-battery radars, and so forth. But the division's mainstay was the M1 Abrams tank. Hmm. Uh, and that, that was a fairly uh, modern version of it, although we did have to up-gun it from a 105 to a 120 smoothbore hmm. uh, when we got out to the Middle East. So lots of work got done on that end as well. And, we, of course, we had the Bradley fighting vehicle. So the division was a modern division. It was well-trained on these systems. Mm-hmm. But to your point, we, we jumped straight up in the air to get them ready and in uh, perfect condition before we deployed. And it really paid off, by the way. Okay. I'm speaking with L. Scott Lingamfelter, author of Desert Redleg. You can find more information on his work at copybookwarrior.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists 
at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. Thank you for your support. And now back to the podcast. So now, so then step back to, or step forward to um, February. You're in the Middle East. You finally arrive. You start getting attacks. Uh, just tell me about the general feeling, the conditions, the, you know, the weather, just all, all the obstacles that you were, well, at least the ones you want to discuss, the obstacles that uh, that you faced as you were trying to deploy. Well, the, the biggest challenge, of course, was after we got there in January, we got in, the, I, I arrived somewhere around the 11th of January, and the biggest challenge was to sort of get our equipment out of the port, which was, uh, you know, just scattered all over the place, and we had to collect it up and marry it up with the right units and then get them on the road. We then took a, a, we then took a road to, the, to our field location, which was way westward, in the desert. Remember, Norman Schwarzkopf wanted to do the big left hook, Chris, hmm. uh, to come at uh, Saddam's forces from way out in the desert and clobber him on the side of his head and in uh, in Iraq, and then go into Kuwait and liberate Kuwait. Hmm. And that was a key plan. And so we had a long way to go. We had like 465 kilometers that we had to travel from the port to our initial locations in the desert. So logistically. That was tough. We had to get out there. We had to organize ourselves. We had to do our pre-combat checks. We did some more training in the in the desert when we got out to TAA Roosevelt, which was in the middle of the Saudi desert, uh, east of the Wadi Abatine, which was a big wadi that ran north and south that actually divided Iraq and Kuwait and then projected into Saudi Arabia. And we were down well south of the border doing that. So one of our initial challenges was to organize ourselves for combat and to understand what artillery units were actually going to be supporting us because the 1st Infantry Division had been given the main mission to create a breach in the Iraqi lines. And the field artillery had a huge mission to set the conditions for that. And so our plan to do that was to fire eight days of continuous artillery raids where we put down about 10,000 rounds, Chris, and almost 2,000 rockets on top of the Iraqi 26th Infantry Division. And that's the conditions for the 1st Infantry Division on the 24th of February to actually conduct the breach, make the big hole in the Iraqi lines, through which three, four, almost four other divisions went off our left and right shoulder to pursue the Iraqis into deeper into Iraq. And so the field artillery was very key in these eight days of raids in taking down many of the combat formations of the 26th Infantry Division and reinforcing Iraqi divisions behind them Mm -hmm. uh, so that when the 1st Infantry Division did the breach, it went like grease lightning. So two questions here. How how closely did the artillery have to get to the enemy to begin these raids and what sort of were you out forward or was there protection? What sort of protection did you have uh, around you? Well, first of all, the, 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 the direct support uh, cannon units were way up front. I mean, they were up six, seven kilometers behind the forward edge of the battle area in order to range deep uh, into the Iraqi rear. Mm-hmm. Our general support artillery, which was the MLRS units, and remember, well, I say remember, I haven't told you this in this interview, but we had 17 battalions 
under the Devarte, a huge aggregate of battalions, mm-hmm. uh, the largest that you've seen uh, really since World War II. Mm-hmm. And our commander, Colonel Mike Dotson, who went on to, to retire as a lieutenant general, was probably one of the most remarkable men I ever worked for in my Army career. And he was able to put together this huge force. And so the general support units of those supporting artillery outfits were about anywhere from 8 to 10 kilometers back from the FIBA. So most of their range was projected forward into Iraqi territory. But there were times when we took our MLRS launchers and actually move them a lot closer so that we could extend their range deeper into Iraq during these raids. And once they fired, then they scooted back to their hide areas, which in terms of protection, your question about protection, we had to use engineer units to dig out revetments for us to put our artillery in, uh, in the event that the Iraqis were to re-engage us with counterfire. So uh, there, there were many, many parts that had to be coordinated, not the least of which is the positioning of hundreds of thousands of artillery rounds in support of the eight days of, of artillery raids. And then the huge preparatory fires, Chris, that we launched uh, on the 24th of February to actually pound the Iraqis one more good time. Uh, for about 30 minutes continuously, about 6,000 rounds and 414 rockets, I think, just off the top of my head, mm-hmm. in 30 minutes, in 30 minutes, mm-hmm. which is the largest preparation that you've seen by a force that size since the since World War II. So many moving parts. I was at the center of organizing that. Mike Dotson put that rose in, in my lapel. He said, go get Exo, go get the ammunition, get the logistics, uh, get these guys positioned right. Uh, And that was my mission, and I lived it every day. Believe me, it was a tough, tough thing logistically uh, to bring this together. So just a fundamental question. How big, um, what's the size of the division, like numbers-wise, troops and equipment, and and then the artillery? Well, a division is in and around 20,000, 25,000 guys, and and that depends on the configuration of three-brigade division. We had practically that many in the artillery. I mean, we had about 11,000 artillerymen who were attached to us during this eight-day period plus the preparation. So it was just an absolutely uh, gargantuan-sized organization. But the division was more than capable of melding the combat power and focusing the combat power of the infantry, the armor, the artillery, and all the other supporting activities, mm-hmm. air, air and, and logistics in support of the division. But really and truly, no artillery organization I was ever associated with ever found itself trying to control 17 artillery battalions. And Mike Dodson did it with i mean it was just a stroke of brilliance and he and and did it very very well and it was and it produced a very efficacious result because we absolutely pounded the iraqis into submission uh and and he continued on from there as we invaded iraq ourselves and pursued the republican guards up in an objective norfolk with which which was just west of the uh iraqi kuwaiti border and that was a big fight as well did you have to deal with much, is it counterfire? Is that the term? 
Um, we didn't have to deal with a lot of counterfire because during the eight uh, days of raids, the, our first priority was to take down their ability to do that very thing. So we targeted uh, their 130 uh, howitzers and their 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 longer range systems, their rocket launchers, and took them out very very early uh, in the process. And as we did our intelligence review each day, mm-hmm. we went back and looked at. Uh, what we thought we had destroyed, and we adjusted our fire plans every day after that to make sure that we had doubled down, double downed, if that's a word, uh, that we had ensured we, that we had assured ourselves that we had, um, in fact, destroyed the backbone of their artillery, their fire support system. Uh, they did fire illumination rounds at us occasionally, just to sort of watch us and see what we were doing in terms of of their own reconnaissance and counter-reconnaissance against our ground forces. Mm -hmm. But the truth is they learned pretty quickly that if you took a shot, even if you fired illumination rounds at us, we would intercept where you fired from and shoot back and destroy you. Mm -hmm. So very, very early on, the doctrine we had developed to use against the the Russians, uh, the counter-fire doctrine, was completely validated as we attacked the Iraqi forces, it worked brilliantly. Considering the um, overpowering force you could you could bring on the enemy, um, what or the adversary, what um, what did you find was the most the next biggest threat to your um, to your people as far as uh, danger to their safety or health or well being um, as they operated? Well, that's a really good question, and one of the self inflicted wounds of of combat is, of course, uh, fratricide. And, you know, we certainly were worried about that. And one of the one of the lessons learned from the, the first Gulf War, Chris, was the need for the Army and Marine Corps and everybody to take a serious look at friend and foe identification. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and a lot of that took place after the Gulf War. I didn't write a whole lot about that mm-hmm. aspect of things in my book. But I'll tell you one area that we found that was a real concern was the the huge number of I say huge the rather large number of dual purpose munition and cluster bombs that actually littered the battlefield that did not explode and so they they became essentially self inflicted minefields that we had to negotiate as we projected the our units into Iraq and to give you an example. The Army uses a dual-purpose munition uh, that that can be both for anti-personnel and for anti-armor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the failure rate was tested before the Gulf War in and around 5%, which was an acceptable rate, you know, in, in a munition. You know, you're going to get 5%, like in a rocket launcher. One rocket had 644 DPICM bomblets in it. Well, you know, 5%, you know, is, is very small. I mean, you're talking a handful of, of submunitions that would, would scatter about. But those submunitions were still very dangerous because they were armed. And if you drove over them or stepped on them, you could be killed. Mm-hmm. And so in the Gulf War, a surprise to us was that that dud rate was probably approaching 20%, 23%, which was quite large. Now, that said, even at that number, we were still putting 
a lot of DPICM on top of the Iraqi units and killing them with it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we were leaving behind a fair amount of unexploded ordnance, and it it was quite dangerous. And, I mean, it, it could easily blow the tires off of a Humvee. And if you were riding in it, the early version of the Humvee that was not up armored as we'd and we, as we saw in subsequent conflicts in the Middle East, mm -hmm. uh, you you could be in really bad shape really fast. How often did did they did the artillery have to operate uh, worrying about chemical weapons? You know, did you have to put on the um, the chem gear and and that sort of thing? Or that's an excellent question. The day that the uh, the war began around the seventeenth of January, we 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 went into mop gear, which was the military posture acronym that we use for putting on uh, chemical protective garments and so on and so forth, boots and gloves and, and gas masks. Uh, and we, we went into that straight away because we gave the Iraqis a fairly good assessed capability of launching chemicals in those Scud missiles. We didn't detect any chemicals uh, that fell on us in, in, the, uh, uh, in the port area. Uh, but we were very concerned about it. We also started taking the, uh, an anti-nerve agent drug, a short, I can't even pronounce it hardly, but it's, it was called PB. And we started taking that on the 17th and took it every day. And it, and it was a prophylactic design to retard the ability of the chemical agents to act rapidly within your uh, organic structure. And so we took that thing consistently right up before during and ended right after the war, we, we took it every day. And it was a vile thing to take, by the way. It just tasted mm -hmm. terrible, like swallowing a golf ball. I mean, it was just terrible. And so uh, we did that. And then we didn't stay in mop gear, that is to say chemical protective equipment or gear, when we deployed out of the port up until about the time that the artillery raids began. Um, but when we got ready to do our breach operation on the 23rd of February, we went into mop, full mop gear without wearing our gas masks. In other words, we put on the, the pants and the jacket and so forth, the charcoal-lined chemical gear uh, that left the soot all over you. It was just, just really unpleasant to wear. But we figured if we put that on early, it would hasten our ability to deploy our full protective posture if we were hit. And that was, quite frankly, my, my major concern as a former intel analyst, having watched the Iran-Iraq war. We knew that Saddam would use chemicals. We, he certainly had on his own people in the past. Mm -hmm. And we were very concerned that even with their, their failure to take down our force with their counterfire, we were very concerned on the day that we went across in the breach, that, that Saddam would react uh, with chemical weapons. And, you know, you're going to have casualties from that stuff. No matter how well prepared you are, uh, you're going to have casualties from it. And that was a major concern that I had. Uh, in fact, in August, rather, back in August of 1990, General Rame actually came up to our headquarters and fa he found out that I had been an Iran-Iraq war specialist, and he had asked me a bunch of pointed questions. I was scared to death, Chris. He was going to bring me up to division and make me part of the intel section and take me out of the Devardian. So I was, yeah. I was scared to death he was going to do that, but he had no intention of doing that. And But he did want to pick my brain for how the Iraqis fought. And I told him, I said, that one of the things that we had to watch out for uh, certainly was 
chemical weapons. I also told him that we probably have to handle a lot of POWs, and we wound up doing just that. Mm-hmm. How did you deal with the um, the heat and the dust, both on the, the men, personnel, and on the equipment? Well, it's, it's a real problem in the desert because dust gets everywhere. I mean, there's just no way you keep dust out of anything. Um, and, I mean, you wore bandanas when you – when you were driving, it was it was really, I mean, it's very very fine dust. Uh, the heat really didn't impact us, Chris, very much until in and around March, and that was after major combat had ended. Mm-hmm. But it was tough. You had to you had to make sure troops were well hydrated, that they were drinking water, and you know one of the big things, Chris, that you did uh, both before the combat began and afterwards is you really have to press your troops to stay, to stay clean, wash their hands. Because I can tell you, you can be out in the middle of the desert and get major cases of dysentery if you're not uh, maintaining good hygiene. So, you know, one thing a field army uh, trains on and has to observe when it's in combat is good, good hygiene or you, I mean, your, your force can get really sick. And some of us did get, uh, what we call desert grunge, which was kind of a fever. We're not sure where it came from, but it, I got it, and other people got it, and it just knocked you dead, mm-hmm. dead to rights. And fortunately for the Devardi, we didn't see a lot of that until after um, the Iraqis had been defeated, and we had gone back up into Iraq to settle in until the ceasefire was totally agreed to before we went back to Saudi Arabia. And a bunch of us got sick as dogs up there mm-hmm. during that. Well, they say historically that's been the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, creator of casualties in war has been like dysentery and, uh, you know, disease. No, no question about it. And and we drilled our troops on this, and they were great. I mean, our guys in the first infantry division were very well trained. I mean, we we had no problem convincing them to to maintain proper hygiene, but also they they did great prep of the battlefield and they prepped their positions. I mean, everywhere you went, the first thing guys did when they, they moved from one location to another where they were going to sit for a while is they dug foxholes. I mean, they dug pr- protected positions uh, so that, I mean, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a person that didn't have a foxhole nearby to jump into in the middle of the night hmm. uh, if we were bombed. In fact, one night the U.S. Air Force actually accidentally dropped a Sidewinder missile on our, on our uh, position. One day, actually, and and uh, the troops all validated their ability to quickly get in the foxhole when that happened. <laughs> Many camel spiders in those holes. Uh, some, uh, some tarantulas. Uh, didn't see any snakes, believe it or not. <laughs> but the desert, you know, interestingly, you think about the desert, and you think, well, big, soft, sandy dune like Nagzad or something. It's not. It's very rough. That is to say, even the flat areas, you know, lots of gravel, lots of sharp rocks, and they work their will on your tire, on the tires of your wheel vehicles. And I mean, they're just, I mean, we went through tires like hotcakes. I mean, we, it was amazing how, how tough that pumice is on your wheel vehicles. And the other piece is there was very soft sand, but that sand actually, was more up in Iraq and in Kuwait. And in fact, um, I mean, you could, it was 
crusty on the top and like fluid <laughs> six feet down. I mean, you could really get stuck badly. And there were a couple of times when we were in convoys moving from one battle position to another where we were digging ourselves out and hoping that the Iraqis wouldn't stumble on us while we were. I'm speaking with L. Scott Lingamfelter, author of Desert Redleg. You can find more information on his work at copybookwarrior.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. If you're interested in other kinds of history, you can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. So considering how fast you were moving or how, how, you know, how successful you were and how quickly things were going, did you have any um, resupply issues, either food, water, fuel, um, ammo, or even the tires um, as they as they had it, problems? It, logistics was a nightmare. I mean, first of all, you need to know we had probably one of the best logisticians I ever served with. Uh, in my army career, and that's Colonel Bob Shadley, who went on to be a general. He was brilliant. Um, but I would tell you that had we not loaded as many parts as we did in every cubby hole we had, uh, when our vehicles left Fort Riley, we'd have been in a mess. And here's why the logistics system that the army used was very well developed from Europe and in Korea and so forth. Lots of experience, lots of infrastructure that would help you track parts and get them delivered rapidly to units. None of that infrastructure, Chris, was present in Iraq, or rather in Saudi Arabia when we got there, except for the Tapline Road, which was the highway of death, we call it. You know, it's, uh, I mean, you, you, we lost troops on that road every day, you know, going out from the port to our positions in the desert. It actually... It was it was awful, um, but that was the major infrastructure that we had to move parts. The problem was, you know, getting the parts from the port scattered out to all the units who had been spread out across the desert floor uh, when we deployed to the that that deep left hook first uh, those first positions we would assume in that deep left hook and we were scattered all over the place and for units to to get parts delivered was a nightmare. And so the, the doctrine did not work very well for Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so one of the things that the, one of the takeaways is you really do have to have a, a capability to project supplies strategically around the world where you think, frankly speaking, you may wind up in combat in one form or another. You're not going to get it right every time, mm-hmm. but there was very precious little of that in the Middle East. There was tons of it in Europe with Pontus stocks, which were the pre-positioned stockage of equipment and parts for units that would fall in on equipment from the United States and then continue to support their European comrades in combat. Uh, There was plenty of that in Europe and in in Asia where there were forward-deployed U.S. forces. Nothing like that existed in the Persian Gulf and even just superb logisticians like uh, Bob Shadley uh, couldn't get a rabbit out of the hat uh, on this one. It was just extraordinarily 
difficult. And it was a pain in the butt for us every single day. So what were the Iraqis using um, to cause the casualties that they did on the, you said, the tap road? Well, actually, they didn't, they, the Iraqis didn't do it to us. It was just the truck traffic hmm. on the tap line road. I mean, we had, I had one of my troops killed out there by a Saudi feed truck, for Pete's sakes. Hmm. It was just not a very good road. It was windswept. Uh, it was not well delineated. You could be riding along at, you know, 40 miles an hour, and the road would just disappear in front of you because the sand had blown across it. And you had literally tens of thousands of vehicles up and down Tapline Road every single day deploying vehicles out from the ports to those field locations uh, where several divisions of the 7th Corps were all being deployed. It was the 1st Cavalry Division, the 1st Armored Division, the 1st Infantry Division, the 3rd Armored Division, the, the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment. All these units were competing using that road to get their equipment out there. And it was just a mess, and it was very dangerous. And you had resupply trucks just flying up and down that road. And, you know, at least one troop a day was probably getting killed out there. It was really bad. The real highway of death was the one up in Kuwait where, you know, the Air Force and the Army capability, you know, just slaughtered Iraqis trying to escape Kuwait and really did them in. That was the real highway of death. But the Tapline Road was a real challenge, and we lost troops out there. Hmm. When you finally got into Iraq and were able to, did you get a chance to see some of um, what uh, damage you had caused, and were you surprised at all, either way, positive or negative, about what you saw? It was ubiquitous, and I got to tell you, that was my first time in combat, and I was stunned by it. Um, the, the, the combat power of America's army and its allies. You know, we had the first British armored division who sat beside us as well. They were out there as part of the Seventh Corps contingency. In fact, they actually, their division artillery was one of those 17, one of those brigade-sized units that contributed in the aggregate those 17 battalions that we brought together. Mm-hmm. Um, and i got to tell you something. The, the, the combat power that we projected onto uh, the Iraqis was devastating. I mean, I it was just devastating. I write in the book several accounts of people who who witnessed uh, not only the preparation but the aftermath, and it was devastating. The, in fact, you know, interestingly, and I commanded an MLRS battalion after the war in Korea, and one of the nicknames that the, that that MLRS uh, units sometimes use is Steel Rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, which describes those DPICM bomblets falling from the sky on top of units. And it was the Iraqis who nicknamed it Steel Rain. And so it just absolutely devastated them. Plus, we fired HE, the high explosives. We fired uh, lots of cannon rounds at them that were high explosive. And they're just devastating. Plus, we also deployed the Air Force on them. And the Air Force was very effective. I mean, the the cluster bombs that the Air Force dropped, we dropped B-52, 2,000-pound uh, daisy cutters on top of these units at strategic locations as well. And, you know, I drove past a couple of those craters. And I got to tell you, Chris, until you've seen one of those craters, you haven't seen a crater. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it's just massive. And 
so the, the bottom line is, is combat power is decisive when properly used, mm-hmm. uh, and conventional combat power can be incredibly deadly if it's properly synchronized with ground warfare and uh, air support. And we did that. So um, in terms of thinking about uh, resources and conservation of resources, you know, funds and and just uh, ammo and material, could someone argue that there was some overkill that maybe um, not so much had to be used and maybe preserved for another time or something like that? No, not really. I think that the big takeaway is is the notion that when you go into war, you go in with everything. Mm-hmm. You go in full up, Chris. You go in, you don't leave anything behind. You put every bit of combat power you have available to you on the enemy because the objective is to break his will to fight and break his will to fight quickly. I don't think we've done a war or participated in a war that that more judiciously and certainly legally within just war theory mm-hmm. brought an enemy to its knees so quickly as the Iraqis. Now, look, they they were not the quality of fighting force that we would have seen in Europe. No question about that. Mm-hmm. But but they still had a very potent capability. They didn't use it wisely, but they didn't get a chance in many cases because we destroyed it so early. Mm-hmm particularly with our deep strike from the Air Force. And then, as I describe in my book, uh, what we did on the front lines to Iraqi forces uh, that we were um, opposing. And so I think that the takeaway is that when you go to war, you're all in and you take you you overwhelm your enemy with everything you can. So this has tremendous implications, Chris, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, current administration and future administrations on how they fund and configure the American military. Our military has to be capable, must be capable of prosecuting war to the fullest extent and certainly uh, within scenarios that we believe are likely to occur. And if we don't arm ourselves, train ourselves and equip ourselves to do that, then I think we're being derelict in our duty. And I do think this current administration has been very good uh, for the military in terms of, of re- returning our strength because the years of counterinsurgency operations, COIN, as it's referred to, as you well know, mm-hmm. really sapped uh, a lot of our strength and capability. And plus, many of our combat synchronization skills that were validated and used in the first Gulf War, a point that I make in the book, mm-hmm atrophied badly during these counterinsurgency periods uh, to the point where even for about almost seven years, Chris, the division artilleries uh, went out of business. Hmm. Uh, and artillery units were all assigned organically to infantry and armor units. And in fact, in some cases, our whole artillery battalions were wound up being used as MPs in, uh, in Iraq, uh, which is not very smart when you think about conventional war in the future. Hmm. Uh, you must maintain the field artillery's overwhelming combat ability uh, to set conditions for success on the battlefield. And here's the good news. That's precisely what the Army has reengaged in in recent years to rebuild the field artillery, to, to create weapon systems with vastly deeper capability, longer ranges, and more lethal munitions. So the Army 
uh, made a mistake, quite frankly, with the artillery um, after the Gulf War uh, and for the period that we were in the counterinsurgency uh, wars. But they have reversed course, and they are on the right path now. And so this book, Desert Red Leg, Artillery Warfare in the First Gulf War, mm-hmm. is, I think, an important read for current policymakers and doctrinal thinkers as we look at preparing for more conventional type wars in the future and people who say, well, you know, Scott, they're not going to, we're not going to fight big conventional wars like that. I tell you what, that's a bet I'm not willing to take. (laughs) Right. Right. So I'll share an anecdote with you that kind of touches on this and maybe get your thoughts. Um, I remember speaking to a, um, a Marine tank officer who participated in the Gulf war. And, uh, he said that, um, I guess his tanks came up on a berm that the Iraqis had buried their tanks in, you know, with the, you know, their, their nozzles pointed out, you know, ready to just, um, take out Americans. And they could have, you know, they were buried deep in the sand, well protected, perfect position, but, you know, all the Iraqis had fled, so they didn't use them. But he said if they had stayed and fought, it would have been really, really rough. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, my thoughts are that, one of the reasons those guys left is there was a desert red leg on the other end <laughs> shooting at him. Uh, and so this is why I wrote the book, is that the field artillery has – this is not new. This didn't happen just in the Gulf War. The, the legacy of the field artillery, the king of battle, as it's referred to uh, in the sort of uh, traditional lexicon, has has had a decisive role since the Napoleonic Wars. I mean, this is not new. Uh, the field artillery is vital in setting the conditions. Um, we we like to say fire and maneuver. In many, many ways, Chris, it's fire, then maneuver. In other words, you use the field artillery to set those conditions to either pin down or destroy the enemy and isolate the enemy so that your combat arms of decision the armor guys and the infantry guys can do their fundamental mission, which is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy. What's left of him? And if you if they use their field artillery correctly, and if we follow the doctrine that has worked so very well uh, in in the years since World War II, and particularly plus those years where the Vietnam veterans. Hey, here's an irony. Here's an irony for you. Hmm. You know, after Vietnam. The Army was in tough shape. It was the Vietnam veterans who stayed in the Army, Chris, that designed the air land battle concept that worked so well in the first Gulf War. Mm -hmm. And they drew on what they knew would work and what they knew would work, even from Vietnam. When you talk to Vietnam veterans, they'll tell you, thank God for the artillery, how many times they saved my butt. Mm -hmm. And that is a consistent legacy historical fact and the, 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 the even entertaining momentarily the notion of uh, not having a strong field artillery and certainly now rockets and longer range and lethality and radars and computerization and better intelligence platforms and look down uh, capabilities to locate the enemy. The, the, even the idea of not having the most robust fire support structure you can have is utter lunacy and anybody in a position of authority who would take the opposite view really should go find other work. (laughs) So, um, does the book, um, 
tell me about the style of the writing. Is it sort of a personal memoir? How, how do you uh, present the information to the reader? It's a great question. I kept um, diaries uh, from the day I arrived in Fort Riley, mm-hmm. or rather uh, from the time I arrived in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, right on through to the time that I left, because I actually commanded the redeployment force that brought the division home. After the war, Tom Rame uh, sought me out and said, I need a junkyard dog to get the division home, and you're the junkyard dog. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. I did not want to do it, but it was a it was a great mission, and I learned a lot about deployment and redeployment when I, when I commanded this organization, about 600 guys, and we basically loaded up 6,000 vehicles from April to July, and we shipped them all home by the 4th of July. We had them on the FC by the 4th of July. So there is a there is there are my diaries which were key in helping me write the book in seriatim in other words i basically used my diaries as my guide dog to take me through as my shepherd to take me through this story mm-hmm. uh, so that the reader and, the, and my intent was quite frankly chris is that you when you read my book that you will feel like you're in the humvee with me mm-hmm. that you're there with me day in and day out seeing the war smelling battle smelling the environment, feeling the environment, uh, seeing the stress, dealing with the frustration, dealing with the lunacy, in fact, sometimes dealing with the humor. Hmm. And all of those human emotions show up at war. They all show up in war. And so I wanted to tell this story. My boss, Mike Dodson, who, again, i got to tell you, is the finest officer I ever served with in the military, uh, gave me his journals. And so I was able to look at his journals and my diaries. I got to tell you something, Chris, when I got his journals, I was scared to death. And here's why. Because <laughs> suppose there were great variants with my diaries. Then where am I? They, they lined up beautifully. Uh, I mean, I was amazed by it. Mike Dodson and I, I think sometimes we shared a brain. I mean, we absolutely uh, did things in unison, which made us a good team. Mm-hmm. He was wonderful about allowing me to do my job. And I was, and I did my best to stay inside his intent. Uh, and together, you know, we composed stories about what happened that were pretty, pretty accurate. I also had the benefit of having access to the, all the old fire plans, mm-hmm. all the operations orders that the division used. I had my original battle map. Uh, I, I came across one of my colleagues who actually had the original battle graphics that I was able to overlay on my map. And as I wrote the book, you know, I'd sit down on my computer, I'd write a chapter, I'd, I'd look over and put my finger on the map where I could look specifically at where we had been and where we were going and what the names of places were and so on and so forth. Uh, and so I tried to bring as much fidelity as I could to the story as if I was, you know, reliving the fight right there in my living room as I wrote this book. Mm-hmm. And so I had I had tremendous uh, resources, which I got to tell you, this is one of my one of my objectives, aside from putting you in my Humvee with me and, and experiencing the war as I saw it, uh, is I wanted to write a very accurate portrayal of the tremendous role of the field artillery in this fight. And I've I had everything. I had all the organizations for combat. I had down to the round of artillery and rocket that we fired. Hmm. Um, so I had a very accurate data set in order to tell this story. And hopefully, hopefully, Chris, uh, this book will be a textbook, not only 
for war planners at the Commander General Staff College and at the Army War College and other levels, but at the field artillery school and at the basic infantry and armor schools where young lieutenants going through the basic course and then captains going through the career course will read about the complexity of synchronizing combat power, but more importantly and quite selfishly, the important role of the field artillery in setting the conditions for success on the battlefield. I hope it becomes a textbook in that regard. Hmm, interesting, yeah. One question I forgot to ask during the war, was it easier to uh, coordinate with uh, foreign partners in the field or with um, your own other service elements? Or, or which was harder? Well, first of all, everything was hard. <laughs> You know, I say it in the front end of the book, everything was hard. And I mean, it's it's kind of like the, the, the I mean, it's like Clausewitz said in the fog of battle and in this friction of war. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, everything is hard. The simplest thing is hard. To your specific question, coordinating with the first first UK armored division was a breeze. Here's why. Because of the standard NATO a training regimen and and discipline and so forth that all NATO allies used. And so on the ground, when you, you had the French fighting over there with the Marines on the on the eastern end of the theater, and you had the UK uh, with their armored division fighting right beside the 1st Infantry Division. Uh, and we coordinated with them day in and day out. And it was like, uh, you know, you're putting your hand in a glove. In fact, our UK liaison officer, uh, Major Rick Rattus, was just superb. And I write about him in the book. And in fact, interestingly, I'm in touch with him even to this day. He just finished reading the book and loved it. And I think he loved it beyond the fact that I mentioned him a couple of times <laughs> in the book. But but he actually, you know, because the 1st UK Division Artillery supported the 1st Infantry Division, they are given credit as having been associated with the 1st Infantry Division during combat. And we as a tradition every year have an Officers of the 1st Division dinner. Uh, And this year I invited Rick to attend that dinner. He'd have been the first Brit, I think, in the history of that dinner since the dinner started in 1919. or 1920, I guess, and, or is it 1919? I probably got that wrong, but anyway, all my first division friends will give me a hard time when they hear this podcast. But, but in any case, Rick was going to come here this year and be with us. Uh, but the COVID thing knocked that out. So hopefully next year he'll be able to, um, to come and be with us. But working with them was quite easy because our doctrine lined up so well. And of course, working with our, with our own organic sister divisions was not difficult because we had trained so faithfully to our doctrine, plus the National Training Center, where many of our units actually had trained uh, to get ready for combat in Europe, uh, oddly were really preparing themselves for desert warfare and didn't know it. So as you were writing the book, you know, going back and researching and double checking things, was there anything you found that surprised you that you didn't realize back then? Well, the dud rate, uh, the dud rate for DPICM surprised me, uh, and I had to do some digging on that because I didn't want to make the comment and then make some manufacturer, some ordinance guy lose his hair over, <laughs> overnight, you know, 
or wet himself that, oh, this author of this book has made this terrible accusation. I actually found a GAO study that uh, confirmed that the dud rate was was much higher than than we had anticipated. And I think that there have been actions since then to, to address that. But in any case, uh, that that did surprise me, uh, quite frankly. Um, but because I had kept fairly detailed journals, uh, the historical timeline was pretty straight in my head. I, I'll tell you something that I did did learn talking to my own colleagues, because I interviewed a number of my artillery colleagues and some of my maneuver colleagues as well. And over time, and remember now, this book is written 29 years after uh, and published 29 years after we uh, we actually fought that war. Next year is the 30th anniversary, if you can believe it, Chris, wow. of the first Gulf War. So everybody go buy the book, go buy the book, because it's perfect timing to read about the Gulf War. But one of the things that I discovered in talking to people is people who didn't keep diaries would lose a day or two in the timeline. And, you know, as I was interviewing them and saying, well, you did X, Y, and Z on, on this date and that date, they no, 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 I did it on this date. And I said, no, 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 you did it on this date because I had the actual timeline. I I was able to have a very accurate yardstick to look at the war, and, and they would come back and say, you know, you're right. I, d- I don't think I did it then. I did it this day. So as I would talk to people, I learned that, you know, your, your mind does get fuzzy over time, which is so important, listeners, mm-hmm. that if you're out there and you wind up in combat, try to keep a journal. I mean, observe all the classification things that you have to do and so on and so forth but try to keep a journal. And one of the reasons I kept a journal was because, remember, Chris, I was a Middle East FAO. I was in my element. I was both an artillerman and a Middle East FAO. And so I had a keen interest in having a very accurate recording of of what went on because I did did contemplate at the time that, well, you know, I might be writing about this one day and I want to make sure that I have an accurate story. It took me 27 years, Chris, to get around to actually transcribing my uh, my diaries from the original uh, Green Army memo books that I kept very faithfully and dated and so on and so forth, page numbered and what have you. And I transcribed those into a Word document and used that as a very handy tool to actually write the book. I used Word, by the way, to mm-hmm. write the book and very simple protocols to do that double spacing and so on. But by recording my diaries in Word, I was able to do more searching uh, for specific references when I needed to go back and validate or look at things. And sometimes, you know, I discovered that my diaries weren't completely accurate. Like I would say an incident happened to the west of our position, and then I began to look at my map as I was writing. I said, it couldn't have happened to the west. It had to have happened to the east. And as it turned out, I made mistakes, uh, not many, but I did make some mistakes in my diary, which I actually included as footnotes where I did make mistakes. So the reader knows that, yep, even in combat, uh, when you keep a a journal, you can screw it up. So when you left in July 91, did you have any inkling that uh, the U.S. would be back like 12, 13, 12 years later? I did. And it was sort of tragic in a way that um, I held that view. I Remember, I had watched Saddam Hussein operate up close and personally for three years of my life. I looked, I had access to every conceivable amount of intelligence data available to an analyst 
uh, during that time frame, 1982 to 1985. I knew how he thought. I knew how he would fight. And I knew how despicable he was. And and I write about this in the book. I, you know, I'm, I don't want to tell the story of the book. People can read the concluding chapters and figure it out for themselves. But but I was very confident that unless you got rid of Saddam Hussein once and for all, that you would be back to fight him again. Uh, if there, you know, despite his very unredeemable uh, character flaws, um, the truth of the matter is uh, Saddam Hussein was a survivor. Mm-hmm. He was going to do everything he could could do to reestablish his his dynasty, and it's an open source issue that even as we were sitting on the ground still in Iraq waiting on him to agree that cease to the ceasefire that Norman Schwarzkopf had, had basically insisted that he agreed to up at Safwan Airfield and I was present there by the way when that happened that was just fascinating to see and I write about that in the book as well that the Iraqis were dropping gas on uh, revolting Marsh Arabs just to our north mm-hmm. to try to establish control in Iraq, even as we were waiting for him to sign the peace treaty. I, I got to tell you, I, I knew in my heart of hearts when we left that we were going to be back. And it made me sick in a way because it just, it just felt like we, we had not completely gotten everything done. But I, people can read the book and they can, they can come down where they want to. Not everybody agrees with my opinion on these things, but you know what? It's my book and it's my opinion. If you don't, you can send me an email and say, Scott, you balled that up, but I think I got it right. And, and, uh, so you can read the book and, and conclude as you will. I'll tell you one anecdote. And that is, um, Norman Schwarzkopf actually interviewed me before I was selected to go out to be the Debardi S3, the, the operations officer at the 1st Infantry Division, and picked me to be his aide-de-camp. But I was in uh, Armed Forces Staff College at the time down in Norfolk, and uh, General Schwarzkopf was the, the Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations in the Pentagon. He got activated a couple of months earlier for his earlier than he anticipated to take over Central Command and get his fourth star. And so I got a call from his exec that says, okay, general's going to Middle East for a tour. He needs his aid. You got to come with him. And I was excited because I was ready to get out of academia. You know, any, yeah. any officer would tell you, if you can escape a school, escape a school, you know, get out of there and get back into combat. And so I was excited to get to escape. And the, the Marine two-star who ran Armed Forces Staff College wouldn't let me go. Uh, and so I was stuck there. Schwarzkopf had to get another guy. Uh, but I lucked out because my because I got a better assignment, which was with the First Infantry Division. And when Schwarzkopf came up to to uh, uh, Safwan, mm-hmm. I write about you know how he walked past me, and I thought you know I wonder what it would have been like to have been with him. But I've had no regrets about it. Mm-hmm. I, I was absolutely with the finest uh, force in the world. And like I say in the book, you know, in the last twenty four notes of taps you know, drifts over my remains. I I want to be remembered as having fought with the 1st Infantry Division, the Big Red One. They were just dynamite. Hmm. Cool. So just one more question on the research. Was there an issue that you really wanted to uh, figure out why it happened? And maybe you did get an answer finally, or maybe you didn't. Any big questions lingering? Not a lot. Um, remember, this book is written from a tactical advantage. There, there, there is not a lot of work out there written by field grade officers 
on the first Gulf War. There's, there's a fair amount written by general officers. But remember, their perspective was one over the world. I mean, they, they had a strategic uh, focus. Some of them obviously were well familiar with the tactical situation. That's what division commanders do. Tom Rame knew what was going on tactically. But, you know, Norman Schwarzkopf wrote a book on the war. It was, it was, it was good. But I wanted to write something at the tactical level and interleave into the book, Chris, a flavor for what it was like to fight in the Middle East, which I was uniquely able to do because I was a Middle East fan. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to, you know, as you read my book, you'll read about what we were doing, and then I'll drop into a discussion about the texture of the Middle East, the traditions of the Middle East, the background on why uh, this thing had come together as it did, the, the significance of how the coalition was formed, the importance of keeping the right players involved and the wrong players uninvolved uh, for fear that the, that the coalition would collapse like a lawn chair in a hurricane. And you didn't want to do that. And so I try to, to interleave into that, the, that discussion to give the reader a real flavor for the complexity of fighting in the Middle East. And so if you've had anybody in your family, Chris, uh, or friends who have fought in the Middle East, either during the Gulf War or since, uh, you'll find this book very illuminating in terms of what your friend or family member went through. So tactically, because my focus is generally there with sort of a strategic interleaving of Middle Eastern stuff Mm -hmm. uh, into the book, I didn't stumble on a lot of surprises. One thing that does surprise me, and again, I I touched on it in the conclusion of the book, is why didn't we take the opportunity to re-engage the coalition on the significance and importance of making sure that Saddam Hussein was uh, decapitated from a power viewpoint once and for all. And I have not found, quite frankly, a, a lot of good analysis there. I, I, you know, a lot of people defend sticking to the original framework of the coalition's uh, raison d'etre. Mm-hmm. I think that's persuasive. I don't think it's uh, cockamamie at all. But I'm suggesting some alternative uh, views of that. Uh, and I think that's what we have to do. I, it, at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm a combat soldier. I'm a Middle East guy, but I'm now also, whether I set out to be or not, a historian. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we have an obligation to tell uh, what we were thinking at the time and what I was thinking at the time. And since then, as I've talked to other desert red legs and desert warriors who fought in that war, many of them have wondered and speculated to me, wow, did we get the job done? Did you have any difficulties um, finishing the book or getting it published? I was very blessed. Uh, I I took about two years to write this book, but I was thoroughly motivated, uh, initially because of the cathartic value of writing a story. Mm-hmm. And there's some hard things in here, Chris, that I had to get out. Uh, and I, I won't go into them now, but there, there were some tough things uh, that I had to write about. And I, because, it, because I wanted to write a honest story, um, you know, there'll be people who read it and, and may, may take some mild offense at the way I characterize things. I'm sorry. Uh, but I had to write it as I saw it. Uh, and if you sit down to write something like this, um, 
you can't you can't worry about who's on your Christmas list. You have to actually uh, write a genuine story, and it's got to be truthful. And so I took a good two years to do this, but I was thoroughly motivated to do it. And it was cathartic. I wanted to get it out of myself. I'd been in the, after I left the army in 2001, I was in the Virginia General Assembly as a, as a, a delegate to the House of Delegates for 16 years. Mm. And so that, you know, politics really gobbled up my time and energy for a few years. But after I got settled in as a politician, um, I said, you know, I got to write this thing. I, I can't let politics stand in the way of this thing. I got to get this thing done, not only for me personally, but for my grandchildren. In fact, I say uh, in the book, you know, this, this is for them, you know, so they will know. And I, in fact, my kids are reading it right now and they say, gee, dad, we didn't know you did all this stuff. You know, so it's been rewarding in that regard. But that my motivation to write it was, was pretty strong. In fact, since then, I finished a book on reviving the revolutionary spirit in the country. And I'm starting a third book now on my time as a, as a Middle East observer in Southern Lebanon, uh, where I kept some diaries there as well. And in fact, I'm in the early chapters of that book right now as we go through it. And again, I'm motivated. I'm motivated because it's cathartic. Mm-hmm. I'm motivated because uh, you need to get this stuff out. Look, Chris, the truth is we all have a book in us. And people have asked me, you know, how do you do this? I mean, how do you, how do you actually get this thing going? And my answer is start writing, just write. Mm. And, you know, you may not like the early drafts, but write, get down your thoughts. And if you've been blessed to keep a diary or keep good notes or letters or whatever, or have access to good information that establishes a timeline, write. There needs to be more, not less military history. There are tons of stories out there that have not been told, that need to be told. The artillery story was one of them. That story is now in writing in Desert Red Lake. Hmm. And I felt that that was immensely important to do. And I'm happy to report that many of my colleagues who've read the book, who, who fought with us, are, were, uh, were very satisfied with the portrayal. Good, good. Um, where can people find you on uh, on the web? Do you have a website, social media? I do. I have a web page that I call Copybook Warrior. Mm-hmm. It's www.copybookwarrior.com. It's where I put up my writings. I write for uh, newspapers and journals. Of course, I write books now. And each week, Chris, I put out a, a Copybook Warrior update. And in fact, I'm working on one today that's supposed to be published tomorrow. And when I hang up with you, I'm going to I'm going to yeah. delve into that and also finish a chapter on this current book I'm writing today. Hopefully, get through this chapter. I, it'll be probably 11 o'clock tonight before I do it. But but copybookwarrior.com is where people can go and read my writings, uh, read my thoughts, read my philosophy of life, uh, and also buy my book. Uh, or if they don't want to spend time on my website, they can go to the University Press of Kentucky website, mm-hmm. key in Desert Redleg, and order the book. And and if they're lucky enough to hear this before the end of July, if they use code FS30, that's Foxtrot Sierra 30, 
by the 31st of July, they'll get 30% off on the book. Hmm, okay. And let me just spell that, make sure I have that correct. So that's C-O-P-Y-B-O-O-K-W-A-R-R-I-O-R.com? That's right. It's okay. copybookwarrior.com. And again, it's the University Press of Kentucky is the publisher, and the code is FS30 to get 30% off by the 31st of July. After the 31st of July, no 30%. But you still get a great book. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, it looks really interesting. I was able to uh, go through some of it, and yeah, it's, it's a nice, um, like you say, the personal or tactical level. And then at the end, I saw there's a big wrap-up, you know, like you say, the strategic, political um, angle of all of this. Yeah, I tackled the tactical, strategic, and geopolitical implications for the war. And so I hope that uh, people will not cheat and read that first <laughs> and then put the book down. But I do hope they'll read the whole book and, and hop in the Humvee with me and my driver, PFC, Roger Lee McGarry, who is a great guy. My, my driver was a wonderful fellow, and I spent a lot of time talking about him in the book because he did so much. And he's just a tremendous human being. I mean, and I know him to this day, and he's just – one of the most fascinating people that I've that I ever served with. But I hope that you'll read the book, that you'll enjoy the book, that you'll ride around in my Humvee with me, uh, see the war through my eyes, through my thinking, through my experience. Uh, and then you can make your own assessment. Um, did, did we get it done? Cool. Well, that's all the questions I have. Um, do you have any final thoughts or words to add to that? Beyond uh, the fact that the Big Red One is the finest infantry division that's ever graced the globe. Um, I, I can't think of anything else to say except that I do hope that uh, all of your listeners who have a war story to tell won't be intimidated by telling it because somebody may be interested in it. In this case, the Association of the U.S. Army was very interested in my book. Uh, and Joe Craig, who is their director, really wanted uh, the association to sponsor this book, which they did. They they were the ones who helped me find a publisher. University Press loved it. I'm, I'm hoping to fall in love with some more publishers here soon to get these other this, this book I finished and then one that I'm working on to get those in print pretty quick. But write, write, write. Tell your story because no one else will. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me. You bet, Chris. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it and review it if possible. I have many other options as well to get great military history information. You can find links to interesting military history videos on my Facebook page, War Scholar. You can find links to interesting military history news articles, military history archaeology information, and academic information on my Twitter page, War Scholar. You can find photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez War Scholar. You can find my military history videos on my YouTube page, War Scholar 1945. You can also sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. In the newsletter, I post additional video and news links as well as regular updates on new military history books being published. Thank you for listening.